And you can still get your coffee, but uh, we're going to get going here. Yeah, you can sit here if you want. Good morning. It's good to have you here today. Have you noticed that uh, with some negative things in life, we just take one look and, and it's like that's enough to be convinced, one and done? So just hypothetically, for example, if you take a 50-year-old man and, you know, there's a big bowl of chili and onions for dinner and a quart of ice cream for dessert... You know, it only takes once, and, you, and the conclusion is, well, I guess I'm never doing that again, right? I'm done there. And there are lots of things in life. We, maybe we try it, maybe we don't. Maybe from a distance we look and we see and we think, oh, no, thank you. Not interested in that at all. That looks awful. And yet then there are some other things in life that they're really kind of negative as well. Things maybe we even dislike, we hate them. We uh, maybe have sampled it and we're embarrassed about that. And we intend, we absolutely intend, we promise God, we promise our family, we promise ourselves, we're never going there again. And what do we do? We repeat it over and over and over again. We're in the question and answer series. And uh, so Pastor Bob's getting a little rest and then he'll be working on the series for the fall. So I'm going to take us for a... A few weeks here through the finish of the question and answer series, one of the, one of the really great questions we got was this, how do I break out of a destructive pattern? I've got something going in my life and uh, it's, it's harmful. It harms maybe myself, maybe my body, my soul or my spirit. Maybe it harms other people as well or I think, you know, it's really not a big deal to me but people keep telling me they don't like it, they don't like what it does to them, sometimes that's it. Or it harms your, your connection, your relationship to God. It's something destructive. And it's a pattern thing. It, it keeps coming back. And we, we make efforts to break free of that. But here we are again, right back in it. So as you can see, it's uh, fairly obvious that what we're dealing with today, it's a, it's a wide spectrum of things. All the way from addictions to, to little things in our character. And we think, you know, I've tried so hard to get rid of that thing and it seems to still be there. I don't understand what that is. So, you know, we've got drug and alcohol abuse. We've got sexual addictions. We've got uncontrolled gambling or, or, or spending. We've got uh, eating disorders. We have self-harm behaviors like cutting. We have just uncontrolled anger and how we process it. There's smoking or maybe we don't like what comes out of our mouth. It's vulgar or swearing. And just, just those things, we, we come to Christ and we can see that he, he transforms so many things and we walk with him for decades and we wonder, why is that little thing still there? I don't understand, you know, I've, so many other things have been redeemed. I sense that. But here this thing keeps running through my life. I wonder why that is still present in my life, even though I've tried. Now, think of the difference it would make if we had a really clear answer to this question. And I think the world really needs an answer to this question. Think of the problems we would avoid in our own lives. Think about uh, how, how much would change, about all the pain and destruction we could stay away from. Think about the people we could help. You know, maybe today you'll be thinking uh, appropriately, it's not always appropriate, but maybe appropriately you'll be thinking about someone else because you know someone and you've tried to help them. You want to help them. Maybe they even want your help. Imagine how, how transforming it would be to culture if we really had a framework to approach answering this question. 
Now, it's, a, it's an enormous question, and sometimes when we're doing this, it can be quick, and sometimes it can be a long, long journey. So today we only have the opportunity to just kind of put a few things in place. And what I want to do first is uh, think about why we struggle with certain things in life. Why do people have this patterned way of, of uh, struggling with the same thing? I want to think about a few things first before we kind of just jump to an answer. The first is I think sometimes we struggle because we mislabel these kinds of problems. We say things like, oh, I goofed or I messed up or I made a mistake. Now, it is, it is very true that uh, we are capable of, of doing something a hundred times in life and we did it the right way, we did it something constructive, and then out of the blue, it was a Tuesday morning, and I went this way, and I look at that, and I'm like, I don't know where that came from, and the next thousand times you do it, you do it right again. Okay, that's goofing, right? That's making a mistake. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something different, and something that that, uh, Jesus is kind of talking about in Luke chapter 6. He says each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the goods stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And so with these patterned kinds of things, it's important that we understand this reality and and we're able to say, hey, you know what? I didn't goof. This is the kind of person I am. I'm the kind of person who does this thing over and over and over again. It's inside me, and that's why it comes out. If our perspective, if we demand a viewpoint that we're basically good people who make little goofs, guess what? When you try and break that pattern, you will not succeed, right? Because your solution is going to be all surface and cleaning up something, and it's just a little goof, so you just need to try a little harder, right? But Jesus says these kinds of things are core, and it's stored up inside, and unless your solution goes to the core, you're not going to have success. So there's the first thing. Sometimes we mislabel the problem. Our solution is going to have to go deep into our character. Here's another reason I think that uh, we sometimes struggle with destructive patterns or sinful things. That's that we rely on willpower. There's a a tendency to think that uh, a pattern like this is just a failure of our will. And we get this concept that our will is like a muscle. Now, I granted, there may be occasions, and maybe I've even done it in a sermon, where, where illustrating your will as a muscle might be helpful, right? But for today's purposes and our subject today, I don't think it, it helps at all. It's because imagine, again, if it's, if it's like a muscle, then what we're talking about is go ahead, work out, build up all your muscles. I dare you, get as many as I have, right? And just get, get it, that was a joke, and, and get so strong because you're going to lift a battleship one day. It's just like you won't get there if it's a muscle. Now, here's a more honest assessment of what's going on. Now, some of you have read Romans chapter 7 many, many times, and this will sound familiar. If you didn't even know there was a book called Romans, this still might sound familiar. Paul is talking about the human interaction with their will and in their choices, and he says this, I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. 
I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Does that sound familiar? Kind of somewhere in your past, in your mind, are, are those thoughts ever there? See, uh, a few decades ago, um, people started wondering, I wonder how many people have lived on Earth, and they started calculating that. And some people think it's like 20 billion, some over 100 billion, and I don't really care. But, but let's just say it's 100 billion people have lived in history. If, if, a, if you take 100 billion people, how well has the willpower served us so far? What we would find is that 99,999,999,999 of us have not found our willpower strong enough to avoid sin. It's really, really powerful. It's gotten all of us except one of us, right? It's absolutely nailed us. Our will, if it's a muscle, isn't up to the challenge. What I want to think about today is that your will is, you know, maybe in some contexts it's like a muscle, but today it's more like a valve. It's more like a valve. Remember what, what Jesus just said about the, uh, the figs and so forth? He said what comes out of something is stored up in, in your heart. It's stored up in your life. That's what comes out, and it comes out through your will because those things in your life, well, what, what can a valve dispense? Whatever it has in the reservoir behind it, right? That's what comes out of it, right? So you got, you know, uh, Dr. Pepper or Coke. What's coming out of that valve is what's inside the tank, right? One of them's pretty good and one of them's evil. I won't tell you which. So it's, it's what's stored up. Now... Uh, where's the book? Here it is. Dallas Willard is a philosopher and a theologian and a writer, one of my favorite, and he wrote a book called Renovation of the Heart. Much of what I'm sharing with you today uh, is kind of uh, based on some of his perspectives, and especially about the will. In fact, he says in the book about our will, what we do is not primarily an outcome of deliberate choice and a mere act of the will. But it is more of a relenting to pressure on the will from one or more of the dimensions of the self. So he's a philosopher, so it always sounds a little more confusing. But, but here it is. I, again, the valve is my idea. But it's like your will is the place that processes these different things that are in you to come up with a decision. But it only works with what you provide it. Right? And, and Dallas Willard is saying it gets pressure... Before it releases something, it gets pressure from what he calls the dimensions of the self. Again, philosopher, so he had to come up with some name. And, and, uh, and what I've done is I've taken his perspective and simplified it down to the biblical number of three. So we can kind of think about these things this morning and, and not be here all day. It, it's more complex than this, and you can look at the book. But So the dimensions of the self, what are those? Well, it's like thoughts and feelings. You have certain thoughts and feelings, and those put pressure on your will to come up with a decision that your thoughts and your feelings like. You have a social context. That's a part of yourself as well. That's one dimension of who you are, your social context, how you relate to people, how you think about them, what you need, and with God as well. And then your physical body is a dimension of yourself, and it has cravings, and it makes demands of you, and it demands on your will to provide something or do something or not do something. The will is influenced by these and some other elements, but again, we're simplifying today. 
And that leads to choices in a, in a corresponding direction. Our behavior begins to look like what these things pressure us to do. So, for example, there's a, a man in his 40s, and, and uh, his thoughts and his feelings go something like this, some of them. Say, you know, I work hard, and I'm, in, uh, and I'm at work, and it's structured, and I get told what to do, and I have to do things a certain way, and so when, you know, when work is over, that's my time, and I deserve to have it unstructured. I deserve to be able to do what I want with my time. And he has a social context as well. And that social context supports the notion that what you do on your own is your own business, and it doesn't matter because it won't affect me anyway. And his body has been trained. His body has been trained to, uh, to crave a particular feeling, and it's a feeling that alcohol produces. Now, it's evening, and there may be some uh, small influence in his life that, that suggests to his will, you really don't want to do this. You know, you can't handle this. Your, your family doesn't like this, right? But what's the overall influence against uh, pressuring against this valve? <laughs> and so when he makes a choice of his will, what comes out? Well, of course, he drinks. There's a teenage girl, and her thought process moves something like this. You know, I'm not loved the way I want to be loved. In fact, I'm pretty sure... I'm not loved the way I deserve to be loved. And I go to church and I hear things that I should probably be loved better than I'm the way I'm loved. And my social context, her social context, is one where, where cutting yourself is a normal activity. In fact, it's a recreational thing to do. And the, her, body, her body has been trained over time to crave something, to crave a feeling, and that feeling is just to feel anything other than numbness. The numbness of not being loved. And so there may be a little part of her, a little suggestion in her that says, you know, why do I have to do something that I have to hide in the bathroom to, to feel better or to feel anything? And there may be a question, but the overall pressure on her life is from these things. And of course, so she does that again. There's a woman and she's a, 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 a professional and and a, and a successful businesswoman, and, and she has this thought process. You know, I'm an adult, and uh, mom treating me like a child is her problem. You know, I, I just don't deserve to be treated this way. Her social context says it's fashionable, actually, to complain about one's parents. And her body, from even at a young age, has been trained to want something, and that is to relieve the physical tension of relational stress... Because, you know, no one likes to carry the physical manifestation of stress. We want to release that. We want to go, ah. And to get that, she's used sarcasm throughout her life towards her mom. And so here she is, back with her mom once again. And she knows that in her, in her workplace, she wouldn't dream of saying such things. That's not who she is. But with mom, out it comes again because what's the pressure against her will? And there's this pattern in her life. Your character, or who you are, is the pattern of the regular or greatest influences upon your will. One more thing about why we struggle, and that is that we limit the gospel. We limit the gospel itself. Now, the power or the nature of the gospel is to impact change. 
It takes us, we understand, from, from death to life. And we, we get that that's a, uh, a different destination after life, right? And so in the gospel, we receive a different destiny. And that's a wonderful thing. We get that. Instead of dead to God, I will be alive to God. And that's a good thing. But you see, the gospel is meant to take us from death to life in all things in life. From the dead-end kinds of ways of spending our days and approaching life to living Jesus' kind of real-life living life. God intends to change the fabric of your being, or what Willard calls the dimensions of the self. In Galatians 2, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Does he mean he was hanging on a cross and he died? No. He's alive when he's writing this. But he's saying, you know what? I, I am dying to the way I used to live in order to embrace the way Christ lives. Now, how do you do that? He talks about that in the next verse. He says, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. That's how I do it. I I do this by trusting what Jesus thinks, by how Jesus relates, and by how Jesus uses his body, instead of the way I have done that in the past. Because he's the one who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. It's interesting how Paul talks about setting aside grace. And you might think, well, why would he even bother with that? But that's his point. He, he thinks he's, ta- he, he's talking to some people, he believes, have done exactly that. They have uh, received grace to change their eternal destiny, Right? But then they're starting to set it aside in terms of how they live out their days. Instead of living by grace, they're still living in their old ways. And he says, no, don't do that. Don't set aside grace. Keep that grace with you. That's the way you think now. That's the way you relate now. That's the way you discipline your body now. Grace, the gospel is my key experience in every dimension of my life. It transforms my thinking. It's to transform my cultural context and even my body. So the question is, how do I break out of a destructive pattern? Here's, here's the answer. It's an overview. It's, it's not easy. But here's what I would suggest. We allow the gospel to transform the core aspects of our character that exert the most influence on our will. When we do that, then what, we, what comes out of us is the good that God has stored up within us. That's the answer. So with the rest of our time, we are going to think about applying the gospel to those three dimensions. First of all, to your thoughts and your feelings. 2 Corinthians 10 pictures life this way. We live in the world, though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. Paul's saying, you know, life is a battle, but we don't fight it in the same way the world does. We approach it in a different way. We've got different ammunition, different guns, right? We have different weapons. He goes on. On the contrary, our our weapons, our ammunition, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up within us, against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So there is a battle 
of the mind. And it is like a war, but there are weapons. And he says, here's the, it's the process of thinking and the ammunition is the truth of God. It is actually the gospel of grace. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the core truth that fights this battle. And he says it's so powerful that it can even defeat a stronghold. Which would be like something you've always believed uh, about life. But it's false. The truth of God is the thing that can deconstruct that. And put truth into your life. It's a battle but the truth of God or the grace of God. The gospel is able to, to accomplish that. Here's the best kind of thinking. Uh, one, one place we find that, Philippians 4. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now, I know that that sounds... Uh, it's, it's one of those verses... ...that, uh, you know, ends up on a Precious Moments figurine... ...and it kind of sounds like that... ...but I just want to suggest that this is absolutely powerful, right? If we, if we actually did this this week... ...I mean, I, I don't know, I was thinking this morning... ...the whole town might be different next week. I'm serious about that. It, it, it's absolutely final... Uh, uh, amazingly powerful. Now, I want to suggest that when, we, when we're thinking about breaking out of patterns or helping someone break out, there are a couple places in particular that it's helpful to apply this kind of thinking. The first is in the area of our values or, or philosophies or guiding principles. Because here's my assumption. That is that destructive habits or patterns in our life, repeated sins are always built on a, on a principle or a value that is false. We're believing something that is not true. What kinds of things? Oh, you know, it could be so many different things. I hesitate to even give an example, but I want to give you something to go with here. It, it's things like... Uh, when we believe, when, when our principle that's driving our behavior this morning is, I deserve something, <laughs> watch out. Watch out. When we really think we're entitled to something, man, that's a pressure on our will that goes sideways every day in this world. Here, here's another thing. Uh, if we're thinking that uh, maybe it's about the nature of the act. You know, I really don't think this is a big deal. I don't think this is that bad. Now, I'm not saying it isn't possible that that thought could be right from time to time, but a lot of times that's not a productive way to think. This really isn't a big deal. Um, something else that I think gets us into a lot of trouble. When our, our value or our guiding principle, the thought that's putting pressure on our will is, I'm not sure how good God really is. I don't feel like he's very good right now. You know what? I know it feels that way. I know life can feel that way. It's just not true. And so... If we're basing our, our actions off a lie, it leads to terrible places. And here would be my point for you. If there's a pattern in your life or, or someone else's life that you are trying to help, you have to figure this out. 
Now, that may not be easy. It might, uh, you might need a friend who will listen to you a lot. You might need a counselor to kind of guide you to the understanding of this. You might need a group, or you might need a lot of time, or a lot of journaling, or a lot of focused study and prayer. I, it might take a year. I don't know. It might take five years. I don't know how, whatever it is, a day, uh, it's worth figuring out because I don't think you get out from underneath or, or break this pattern without figuring out what are the things I'm believing that drive this that are not true. Because what I need to think is what is true and what is right. When I believe that, then something is stored up in me, see, that my will has to work with because it's working with the stuff of God. Truth, rightness, things that are lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. You have to figure it out. The other area that you want to apply this to, it seems to me, and and I've kind of mentioned this before, are your idle thoughts. I've noticed... Um, it's probably not, it's not always true. I know it's not always true, but for a lot of people, we get into, where do our patterns exist? It tends not so much to be at work where there's a structure and a boss and guidelines, or or if your family is well-ordered and structured, it probably doesn't happen there, though if your family isn't in my... Um, it, it tends not to happen, you know, here at church, because you're all supposed to sit and listen to me and look this direction. So none of you are really, you know, you know, hitting somebody or doing something weird right now. You know, you're okay, because it's all structured, right? But where do these things creep up? Well, on the weekend, and during the summer, and at night, and in your free time, and when you're alone, see? So your idle thoughts... When they are true, and when they are noble, and they are right, and they are pure, and they are lovely, you can see how much better off you'll be in terms of feeding yourself something and your will something that's going to be productive. Now, Jesus is our model, of course, and he shows us what it looks like. You remember in John 13, um, it's the night before he dies, and um, it's right before the Lord's Supper, and he washes the disciples' feet. And this is absolutely a foundational verse for understanding how he lived, right? It was not just that night. This is how he lived. It says, Jesus knew, okay, guiding principle, core, structure, foundational perspective on my life. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and he washes the disciples' feet. Now, see, if he comes into that night and his, his core guiding principle or value that night is, hey, guys, uh, excuse me, but I'm the son of God here. You know, I think that my feet should be the ones that are washed. And he could even make a case for that, you know. But that's not what he's banking on, you know. Here's where he's anchored. He's anchored to what the Father has said about him. And that is to be true for you and I as well. This is what it looks like in Jesus' life, and this is what it's to look like in our lives as well. Anchor to what God has said about you in the gospel and where it takes you. So your thoughts and your feelings, they need to be transformed by God's grace. Second thing is to apply the gospel to your social context. 
Now, when I think about uh, kind of sin patterns, destructive habits, so forth, I think of a couple different possible social dynamics. There may be more, but I think, first of all, of someone um, stuck in something, and maybe their social dynamic is that uh, the people around them promote that in them. Or maybe they participate with them in it, and it keeps you going, right? Or maybe they don't really participate, but they enable you to do it. Or maybe they just don't care. They're apathetic to it, like, whatever, you can do that. I don't care, you know. So that might be your social context. The other one that seems to me really uh, fosters staying in a pattern is isolation. Your social context, maybe you either have, or, or the person has too few relationships, or too little of life is lived within relationship. So it's not that the people around this individual are apathetic. They just don't know because you're not living really in relationship with them for, for them to even know this exists. They would care if they knew. They would help if they knew. But it's hidden. So I, I think of a couple of those different things. Now, understand, um, we could look at the book of Proverbs and we could do a whole series on a truth that it's good to avoid bad influences in your life. That you choose godly friends. And that's a helpful kind of thing in life. I'm just, what I want to say though is that that's inadequate for someone who's now needing to break out of something. It's just not a complete enough view because the gospel wants to completely restructure or reorient your social world as well. And here's what it's based on. It's based on an important element of the gospel that not only were your sins forgiven so there is no punishment, but there is another aspect to understanding the result of the cross. And that is, you have been reconciled to God. You have been reconciled into a friendship, into a connection, to a relationship with God, and so you are secure and you are accepted by God. And then your relationships, your human relationships, are transformed by those realities. So when we come to the New Testament and we look about how uh, we're instructed to treat each other, you know, all the, all the be nice passages... Now, Come on, people, you're the church. Be nice, right? All those passages, like Colossians 3, what we find is many, many of them are keyed off first our relationship to God. Here it is. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, be nice. <laughs> right? Don't, not, not be, I don't care how you feel about it, I don't care what you got going on in your head tonight, be nice. He says, no, don't do this. You, you ha- have to understand you're holy and dearly loved. Now you can be nice. Now have compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. He says, uh, for, forgive, let me find it here. Bear with each other. Forgive one another if you have, if any of you have a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Don't just go out and forgive people. You're lousy at it. Sorry, but you stink. <laughs> But if you're a forgiven person, uh, you're good at it. You do it the right way. Forgiven people forgive with excellence, with beauty. It's It's a healing thing. It's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. Unforgiven people 
they don't forgive so well. <laughs> and this is how the New Testament always talks about our social world. It starts with your connection to God. Notice what it looks like in, in Jesus. In John chapter 8, it says, Jesus said, talking to a crowd of people here, and there's been this kind of debate about who he is and who the Father is, and is he connected to the Father? And he says, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you'll know that I am he, Son of God, and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. See, even Jesus doesn't rely on himself or his will only. He doesn't rely on just choosing good friends. In fact, what he has done is he has relied on his father to such a degree that he can do what we often think we shouldn't do. He can keep bad company, right? He eats with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. How did he do that? This is how. This is how he did it. Because his relationship to the Father was the core and the greatest aspect of his social context. It was his primary relationship. The Father was the loudest voice in his ears and the place of greatest influence socially. Notice how he says that he, he, he knows he's never alone. He's never alone. That's a pretty remarkable statement for a human being who was so rejected and so despised and so mistreated and so misunderstood and so betrayed, you know, you get the picture, and then beaten and then killed. He says, but I am never alone. And he feels this to the core of his being because it's his connection to the Father. He says, man, I, I'm holding on, and I know for sure I am never alone. Now think about this. Even the closest people to you, I hope it doesn't happen, and you hope it doesn't happen, and they don't want it to happen, but the, even the people closest to you today might harm you tomorrow. They might leave you tomorrow. It's possible because it happens in this world every day, and yet not with the Father, not when you have been reconciled to him. He says, he, he, Jesus says, I am never alone. Think about, this is just loneliness. I mean, we got all kinds of other social dynamics we could think about, but think just about loneliness and how many desperate behaviors are driven within people because they feel alone. It's staggering. It's staggering. The, the destruction in the world today because people's primary experience inside socially is that they feel alone. And all kinds of sideways stuff comes out. But you are never alone. So, here's what I'm suggesting. Now, this is a little bit like the, the, the challenge to figure out the thinking that underlies a pattern. Here's changing your social context as well. This is, what I'm, uh, this is what I'm suggesting. And that is that you increase the importance, the intimacy, the, the connection with God 
in your life until it begins to have more impact, more influence on your will than your human relationships have. I wish I could help you more with that, but that but I honestly believe that that's what Jesus is saying he's doing and he says and you can have that experience as well. That your connection to God would be a greater voice and source of influence, of security, of acceptance, of confidence, of everything you need relationally would be there. And now you're released to relate to your human social context in a completely different way. Well, like Jesus does. Like Jesus does. So there's your social context. And then your body, where it is, physical body. So I just have to think, what time do we, oh yeah, so it's always hard. No, we started at 10, didn't we? Oh, so I'm out of time. See, I almost thought I had 20 minutes, so it was good, I figured that out. Okay, your physical body. Now there was in the, in the first century, there was this philosophy, um, I need Pastor Bob speed. Um, there was a, a philosophy that said, you know, your body is evil. Your body, uh, the, everything that's physical is evil. The, the good stuff is uh, your spirit. You know, that's what's holy, that's what's pure. And so it got really messed up. You knew it was going wrong when they would say, so, you know, like sin in your body doesn't really matter, so I can do anything with my body because my body's already evil and my spirit's still pure. It was crazy. Now, the strange thing is you can still kind of hear some of that influence today if you listen to the right channels or something. But anyway, there, 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 admittedly, there are a lot of passages in the New Testament about our flesh and it can begin to sound like I'm carrying this evil thing around, you know. But I don't think that's what the New Testament means about the flesh. What it's saying is that your body starts off, like all the rest of you, as unredeemed. But the gospel and God's grace intends to redeem your body as well. Your body isn't inherently evil. What happens is evil begins to reside within it and drive the cravings that exist in your body. And then that pressure is put on your will. So your body, your physical life needs to be redeemed too. And we know that this is God's intention because what does he say? Ultimately, he will not be satisfied just to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. He's like, no, no, no. You gotta have physical resurrection. I gotta, I gotta put you back together with a physical body. I'm redeeming the whole thing. The cross of Christ takes care of everything, right? I'm not leaving that behind. You're gonna be a whole person. Everything gets transformed. Romans 6. Uh, Paul says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. In Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. You actually have a choice. You could do something so that uh, the flesh isn't the power in your body, but God is the power even in your body. He goes on Do not offer any part of yourself, he's talking about your physical body, any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Now, when we think about uh, discipline physically, 
and we get the, the obvious categories of, uh, you know, like diet and exercise. Those things come up right away. Not really intending to talk about that, but, but it got me thinking about disciplining your body. And, and um, I thought, we usually have this attitude that they're the, the, the runners and the people eating wheatgrass and all that, uh, whatever that stuff is. Anyway, you know, those are the disciplined people. And then there's me over here, you know, like, uh, I'll drive to work and eat a pastrami sandwich, you know. So we, we kind of get these two categories. But then I was thinking, well, actually, is that true? Is, is being undisciplined even possible? At least from this perspective, I don't think undisciplined even exists. We're all, we have all disciplined our bodies. It's just a question of what you've disciplined it to do and to want and to crave. Sometimes we have just, we've disciplined, we've trained our bodies to want things like too much food. Or we've trained our bodies to crave sex, whether it's pure or not, doesn't matter, just give me some. We've trained our bodies to want that big awe, you know, we're, we're angry and we want to get rid of that stress. And there's a physical, now you know this to be true, when you're angry there's a physical manifestation in you, right? More heart rate, tension. Like, my neck's starting to hurt. This is cramping up. I need a back rub. You know, just like anger has got me physically in a totally different place. I don't like it, and I want it to be released. And so I've trained myself to use anger (sighs) to get an ah. And yeah, I just mowed over people on the way to get my ah, but my body wanted some ah. See, we... I don't know. Maybe there is no such thing as undisciplined. There's just what you discipline yourself to do. Here, Paul is saying that uh, not only do you want to resist certain things, but you want to replace things in your life. You want to discipline your body in several ways. Now, again, uh, we really don't have time to to go any farther, but, but this is one of the roles of spiritual disciplines in your life. And yes, fasting and worship and prayer, meditation, these kinds of things, they are a connection to God. They're, they're relating to God, but they're, they're also a disciplining of the body. Come on, body, we're going to go do this now, right? Offer yourself as an instrument of righteousness and that you can actually build Uh, something in your life and discipline something in your life to the point where that's actually what you crave. Jesus, again, is our example. John 4, remember the story? He uh, met this woman at a well and they had this great discussion and she believes that he's Messiah and and, uh, she runs into town to tell everyone and uh, the, the disciples have gone into town to get lunch and it says, meanwhile, his disciples came back. They, they urged him, Rabbi, eat something. Come on, we went through the drive through Get your super tacos. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And the disciples said to each other, did someone else go? Did they go through KFC and bring him chicken? Because I, you know, like, did someone bring him some lunch? Because we went to get it. Oh, oh, I wanted to give Jesus lunch. And Jesus like, guys... My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Now, 
Jesus is not saying, you know, don't, don't forget, I'm God, so I don't actually have to have lunch. I can just override that thing in my life. No, he knows he needs lunch. He knows his body will need to eat that day. And he'll be thankful for what the disciples went to get. He's just saying, my body craves some things more than others. And I just had the most amazing experience. I talk to this woman and everything changes. She's running into town. All their lives are about to change I love this. I can't get enough of this. What are you guys talking about lunch? It can wait for me because this is incredible. I crave this stuff. I feel, see, I'm, I, I get goosebumps over this. I know I need a sandwich, but whatever. He had trained himself to offer his, his body as an instrument of righteousness. Now, this is possible for us as well. A big subject. Again, I'm sorry, I don't have more help for you there, but Think about it. God will lead you in that. So I know it's kind of annoying uh, when you ask a really tough question like, uh, how do I break out of a pattern that someone just asks questions back at you? But that's really what I have for you today. How do you break out of a destructive pattern? How does someone do that? How do you help them? You're going to have to ask yourself, do I view the problem accurately? Am I really thinking about it the way the Word of God thinks about it? What have I believed? Is there, is there some false thing, some untruth I'm believing and basing my life on in this pattern that's driving that and giving me permission to do this or making promises to me or whatever? What have I believed? I need to get away from that to what is true and right. Uh, am I pursuing God so that my relationship with him is sweeter and more reliable and more dependable and rock solid to me than my human relationships? And how can I better discipline my body? Those are the questions. And uh, let's pray together. Father, we do, uh, we know we, we need your help. We've, um, there are things we have tried before and we haven't found success and we need your help. Some of us are thinking about something in our own life. Someone, some of us are thinking about someone we love and we would so desire that they would be able to uh, break out of that and find life. Father, um, our time is short and so the prayer is short, but um, <clears throat> it's, it's not a measure of our intention this morning to seek you. Please help us. Help us answer these questions and find that the gospel and the grace of God is sufficient to transform our lives. We look to you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.